Welcome to The Debris. This is where we talk about what was left behind by Hurricane Katrina and the floods that followed. I'm your host, Eve Tro. We're coming to you from WWNO, New Orleans Public Radio. Well, we've made it. Heck of a job, everyone. It's been a long, hot summer, and this... This is our last episode as we come up on the 10th anniversary of Katrina. The city is abuzz right now with journalists and experts and NGOs and politicians. They've all descended on New Orleans. And we thought we'd use this last bit of the debris to explore a word they're all using to talk about the city. What makes a city resilient? That makes Resilience. That wasn't such a popular word back in 2005. So where did it come from? Well, it has a particular path from academia into the rhapsodic public speeches of today. And we talked to Josh Lewis about that. I'm Josh Lewis. I'm a uh, research analyst at the Tulane Xavier Center for Bioenvironmental Research in New Orleans and a doctoral candidate at the Stockholm Resilience Center in Stockholm, Sweden. He studies how things like levees and shipping channels affect the ecology of the southeast Louisiana region, the cypress forest, for example. And he says the concept of resilience came from ecology. Ecologists in the 1970s were looking at uh, the impact of invasive insects on forests and things of that nature and studying how ecosystems responded to those disturbances. And one of the dynamics that they're interested in is the system's overall resilience to those disturbances. So even before maybe 2000, you didn't see resilience really used much in the social sciences. You, you, you saw it in psychology. It's been used in child psychology to describe children uh, and how they respond to trauma. But in terms of talking about cities and societies, uh, that's really something that's emerged primarily in the last 15 to 20 years. And it's moved quickly in part because uh, scholars of resilience, they really want these research findings to be useful for policymaking, uh, information that uh, decision makers can take action on. So when Hurricane Gustav hit a few years after Katrina and the levees held, New Orleans was proven resilient. And when nonprofits and community groups that sprung up after Katrina stayed on to help in New Orleans, they were aiming to make the city's people more resilient. It's meant as a compliment, this word, and Josh Lewis himself takes it as that. He says he's proud of how his own family in New Orleans has shown resilience, how they've put their lives back together since Katrina. But we talked about this flyer that we'd both seen pictures of, posted in New Orleans after Katrina. It had a quote on it attributed to Tracy Washington, who now works with the Louisiana Justice Institute. It said, stop calling me resilient, because every time you say, oh, they're resilient, that means you can do something else to me. Lewis says that's the flip side. If you use the word resilient to sort of praise uh, folks in the region, maybe it could be government giving up a bit of their responsibility in that they're kind of passing off those responsibilities to respond to these events to, uh, to individuals and to families uh, when, in fact, more could have been done to support people. Just saying generally that New Orleans is resilient or Southeast Louisiana is resilient, you can tend to gloss over that everybody didn't have the same capacity and the storm's impacts weren't uh, even either. You know, it was, that was quite differentiated. So it's always important to be very specific when you use the word resilience. You know, as scientists, we 
we try to do that. Um, but when these kinds of words and concepts get circulated in politicians, there are some, some specificities and some details that perhaps go underemphasized. So careful with that R word as it pops up this next week around Katrina and going forward. Lewis mentioned resilience as applied to children and trauma, and there have been many studies after Katrina following the mental health of kids who went through the storm and the flood. Those continue to show significant impacts. Earlier this summer, we heard from Michael Patrick Welch, who teaches a rap and hip-hop writing class, and heard the Katrina song that his students wrote. This year, as Michael wrapped up his summer session, he asked some of his current students, ages 13 and under, to say what they remember or what they've been told about Katrina. Here's what he found. And so ends another year of summer camp in New Orleans, my 10th summer teaching camp. Nine years ago, Katrina had just rolled through and left everyone dazed, to say the least. At the time, I worried we'd all quickly forget the important lessons and other details of Katrina. And almost ten years later, teaching campers aged 9 to 13 at one of New Orleans' many new charter schools, I suspected that New Orleans kids these days didn't remember Katrina any more than they remembered traditional public schools. Which is strange, because some of my campers this year were really in the thick of the Katrina action, whether they were cognizant of that at the time or not. More than a few of my campers were Katrina babies, and just weren't allowed to be born in New Orleans. Like 10-year-old Milan, who says her dad rescued her mom on a boat to take her to the Superdome. I was born in November 1st, 2005. My mom was pregnant while, while she was in the Superdome, and we went to Texas and she had me in Texas. Ten-year-old Bryson's parents were determined to circumvent that fate. I was in my mom's body during Hurricane Katrina, and my mom did not want me to be in this weather, so I moved to Arkansas, but my mom did not want me to make me born in Arkansas, so I moved back to New Orleans. Since she was born in New Orleans, she wanted me to be in New Orleans. Some of the campers do have small, vague memories, if not of the storm, then at least of that tumultuous time. I lived my first year of life in a FEMA trailer in Mississippi. It wasn't a, a nice trailer, but, um, you know. That's nine-year-old Michaela. Because the flood's anniversary rolls around during the summer, kids miss out on the chance to observe Katrina annually in school. I'd also hypothesize that these kids became old enough to hear about Katrina right around the same time that most adults in New Orleans were pretty burnt out on the topic and done talking about it. Cheyenne, for instance, knew very little about her life at that time. I don't know if my house was destroyed. Though many of their parents, like Bryson's, had filled them in on Katrina's more important plot lines. During Hurricane Katrina, that my mom told me the Superdome was so damaged that... New Orleans Saints almost did not have to play anymore in New Orleans. Renee was able to describe her parents' struggle in detail. We had a hard time finding a place to live because we have plenty of dogs, but we found these nice people that gave us a place to stay. Others, like Milan, had clearly learned both the facts and the opinions surrounding that historic travesty. The white people didn't really care about the black people and what black people do. Michaela is still finding out bad news to this day. 
It turns out that my aunt Kat and a few of my other relatives got very sick and died. I always thought they were like still alive, but my mom, she didn't really want to hurt my feelings because I'm really fragile with people's deaths sometimes. Over the first couple weeks of camp, my campers went from uninformed about Katrina to, frankly, a little worried about living in New Orleans. I tried to assuage their fears by explaining that the levees have since been strengthened along with some other new safety measures, and if a storm that big ever came again, we should all hypothetically be more ready than we would have been otherwise. But just to make sure, the campers thought long and hard about what they might cram into the car for that interminably long evacuation drive to Baton Rouge or beyond. Ethan's list focused first on his responsibilities. Turtles, animals, pets, clothes, pet food, food, travel TV, water, extra gas, family. Bryson was very pragmatic. Food, drinks, games, gas, music, jacket, clothes, boat, car, and a house made out of waterproof newspaper. While Lucy sounded like she worried she'd be gone for a very long time. Flashlight, batteries, first aid kit, radio, extra food, clothes, and extra safety pillow, teddy bear, dog, vegetable, gas, jewelry, pictures, dog food, and water, favorite body wash, lunch bag, red wagon, and that's all. I remember like it was just yesterday, sitting in front of the convention center waiting for the caravan buses, the buses out the city. The man even come through, had us out there starving, looking for water, people separated from their father and daughters. Man, it was straight madness and straight pain, little babies crying, old folks dying. I couldn't believe it. Still waiting, still waiting, but I didn't see it. Where's the caravan buses, Mayor Ray Nagin? <laughs> <laughs> Since we started this series, The Debris, a lot of you have asked, are you going to talk about the sandwich? Yes. Yes, we are going to talk about the sandwich. For those of you who don't know, there's a po'boy in New Orleans called Debris. It's a particular style of roast beef. And yes, it's something you'd actually want to eat, but you probably shouldn't eat it every day. Parkway Bakery and Tavern on Bayou St. John serves roast beef in this way on local Leidenheimer French bread to boot. We got a peek in the kitchen. Debris means to me is, is everything good at the bottom of the pot. Debris is all that delicious shards of meat. It's sloppy. It's a sloppy mess, but that's what makes it good. My name's Justin Kennedy, and you're at Parkway Bakery and Tavern. We probably do about 1,000 sandwiches a day. My station is based on the second line. We do the roast beefs, uh, working with, you know, main of the specialty sandwiches. Trenise is my name. She's putting the roast beef on that bread. That looks good. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. And it tastes real good. It's just basically making it with love. Just knowing somebody's tasting a, you know, piece of your work. Writes the name on there, wraps it up, gets it out. Order up. All right, Tucker, order up, Tucker. And Parkway's owner sat down to talk with us a little more about how he brought back this sandwich shop and bar that's become even more of a mid-city institution since Katrina. I am Jay Nix. I'm the owner of Parkway Bakery and Tavern in mid-city New Orleans. And tell me about the first time you saw this place 
after Katrina? Well, the first time I saw it was from the satellite photographs, and I could see that there was still a roof on the building, which was important, because if you had a roof, chances are you had something left. So I uh, had a friend who had a helicopter, so we flew in. Everything was destroyed. We had chest-deep water in the bar, and we had waist-deep water up in the kitchen. So what I did was I went to all the registers and went to the safe, and I left with about $4,500 of wet money, small denominations, too. So I I went to Folsom, Louisiana. My friend had a uh, place out there with a big barn, and I went and laid all that money out in the attic. And when I say the word debris, what does that word mean to you? Well, related to the topic we're talking about, I remember specifically where we froze everything before we left because we figured we'd come back and it'd be okay. The frozen uh, 50-pound boxes of shrimp, the bottom one thawed out, and then the whole pile tumbled over and pushed the freezer door open, and all that seafood spilled out on the floor in the back office. So when we got back, it was shrimp, but it looked like rice. I think we know what that means. Anyone who was here after Katrina knows what that means, a bunch of white rice that was perhaps moving. Yes, it was, it was live rice. Oh, I'm going to let the rest of you try to decode that. How did you decide that you were going to reopen? Was that a decision you had to make? We had four FEMA trailers here. My nephew, myself, and two employees were staying in. I couldn't get it together, but my nephew, he got out and started cleaning up. Now, when you say I couldn't get it together, what do you mean? I wasn't sure if life would ever be the same or Parkway would ever come back. It was just too overwhelming to look at the mess. And Justin got out there and started cleaning up. After a while, I felt that I had to help him because I couldn't see him do it alone. Then I got the spirit and I got going. But it was really my nephew who got out there and was determined to clean it up and get back open. Why was Parkway specifically important for people to see uh, that it was going to reopen again? Well, when we reopened, we reopened with just roast beef. We were doing... uh, 1,200 pounds a week of just raw roast roast chuck. And that was really a, a very nourishing sandwich for everyone who was uh, rebuilding. Uh, everybody needed food. And the magical thing about sandwiches is they're good during depression. They're good during good times and bad times. Sandwiches are good for all the time. You can always fall back on a sandwich. The magical thing about sandwiches. Jay Nix at Parkway Bakery and Tavern. Yes, you can order your debris roast beef sandwich there, or try my favorite, also kind of Katrina-appropriate. It's called the Surf and Turf. That's roast beef and fried shrimp on a sandwich with a ladle of gravy on top. Yes, you heard that correctly. We'll pick up the brass band sound again because one of the most commonly used metaphors for New Orleans recovery, rebuilding, renaissance, 
And yes, resilience is the second line. Those weekly parades fueled by brass bands have roots in the jazz funeral tradition. It's often interpreted and admired as showing how New Orleans can rejoice, can dance in the face of death. That's a beautiful idea, but it goes deeper than mere symbolism. Second lines can be seen as a community's way to cope with trauma, be it death or ongoing violence, and certainly the trauma of Hurricane Katrina. When the city's population scattered and so many of its neighborhoods were decimated, it was nearly impossible to imagine this tradition coming back. Which is why, in an eerily silent New Orleans, emptied of most of its people in September 2005, it was kind of hard to hear George W. Bush give this part of his speech in Jackson Square. Once the casket has been laid in place, the band breaks into a joyful second line, symbolizing the triumph of the spirit over death. Tonight, the Gulf Coast is still coming through the dirge, yet we will live to see the second line. But you can't have a second line without a band. And Tulane music professor Matt Sakakini says 10 years ago, most New Orleans musicians had no place to live and no work. Brass bands, bread and butter jobs are funerals, parades, parties in New Orleans. It's not like they can make a decent, steady living playing this music in, say, Houston. This music and this place have a symbiotic relationship and the place was gone. Brass bands and second lines are a culture born in hardship. A century ago, when black residents could not buy insurance, social aid and pleasure clubs formed to raise money for members' funerals. Even as times changed, the tradition not only persisted, but grew. The clubs threw big annual parades that became huge sources of neighborhood pride. With miles of empty neighborhoods after Katrina, the ingredients for this culture separated, with no obvious way to bake them back together. After Katrina, I was actually fearful that the culture would die. Tamara Jackson is with the VIP Ladies and Kids Social Aid and Pleasure Club. After Katrina, she co-founded a centralized effort to bring back the clubs, their members, and musicians. The first step was a super second line. It happened in January 2006, just a few months after the storm. Hundreds of members of dozens of clubs. That has never happened in the history of Second Lines where we had all of the clubs together. It was more than just a one-day celebration. Conventional wisdom might suggest that to rebuild a city, you have to get people in their houses first. Then the music and culture will come back. But it turned out to be more intertwined than that, says Matt Sakakini. Culture provided the red carpet for return, and culture was the foundation upon which our infrastructure was rebuilt. Clubs would announce a parade, and it became a reason for crowds and musicians to come back to a neighborhood. A little more than a year after the storm, the Nine Times Club held its parade in the hard-hit Ninth Ward. That was really emotional for a lot of us. The club's co-founder, Raphael Anthony Peter Parker Jr., remembers walking the parade route ahead of time, moving flooded furniture and rotted refrigerators. The club got a bar in the neighborhood to reopen just for that day, and they danced past rows of empty, ruined houses. It was like 
basically a reunion too also because everyone was seeing everyone uh, for the first time since the storm and some some people couldn't get back you know for the parade which was a lot of talking on the phones and stuff like that. People held up their cell phones he says so displaced family and friends could hear their dead neighborhood come back to life. Fast forward to this year, just a couple of months ago, vendor Darren West at his grill on the sidelines of the Zulu second line. I got chicken wings on there, smoke sausages, hot sausages, hamburgers. Over the past decade, he's seen some of his customers who moved elsewhere lured back by the culture. I think the second line has really helped a lot and motivated a lot of people to come back home because many a times a lot of people were like frustrated and didn't want to come back home but only was coming home on Sundays just for the second line. Eventually, some of them decided to repair their homes, to resettle. Others chose to stay away. But second lines are still a reason to visit, from Baton Rouge or Houston. Atlanta, Chicago, L.A. And at today's second lines, you see more white faces dancing behind the African-American clubs. The parade routes are easy to find online, something unheard of a decade ago. This doesn't dilute the tradition, says Edward Jackson III, known as Juicy, trombone player in the to-be-continued brass band. Only because the world is seeing it in a different light, and that's what's bringing upon, you know, a national conversation and community of the New Orleans culture. People are more um, awake about what, what we do, which is what we want as a culture. The relatively young band has become a fixture on the parade scene, and they have a regular Wednesday night club gig. Plus, TBC has added new musical talent. Uh, my name is Paul, Paul Cheyenne, um, TBC uh, saxophone player. He moved to New Orleans from France shortly after Hurricane Katrina to study the city's cultural rebuilding. Now he's living it. Everybody, you know, always asks me, you know, how come, you know, you're, you're French and you're white and, and you ended up playing, you know, with TBC. And I'm like, it's always people who are out of town who ask that question. I don't really think about it too much. I'm just trying to do my part. I feel extremely lucky to be a part of it. New Orleanians, he says, are simply happy to have another musician keeping up a tradition that felt almost lost a decade ago. And to commemorate the 10-year anniversary of Katrina, New Orleans is hosting what's being billed as the biggest second line ever. It's thrown by Q93 hip-hop DJ Wild Wayne, who's put together a second line from the levee breach in the Lower Ninth Ward every year since the flood, dedicated to the lives lost in the storm. This year's is also a call to address economic disparity and social injustice and for government attention on climate change. And it's a great way to show New Orleans, yes, I'm going to say it, resilience. If you're in town, join in. You'll find details at WWNO.org. And that's it. We're letting go. That's where we'll put down our Katrina debris, getting ready to second line, and get a little release from all that's happened the past 10 years. Katrina the Debris is produced by Kate Richardson. Jason Saul is digital director. Paul Mawson is general manager of WWNO. 
Special thanks to Jesse Hardman, Mallory Falk, Janaea Williams, Lane Kaplan-Levinson, Farrah Hudkins, and all the WWNO staff who helped this summer. Support comes from Dirty Coast Press, more about their locally designed products at dirtycoast.com, and from the Outlet Collection at Riverwalk in downtown New Orleans. Shopping, dining, and entertainment, and on-site parking, with Neiman Marcus Last Call, the Puma Store, the Coach Outlet, and more, riverwalkneworleans.com. We hope you've liked our local coverage this summer. New Orleans Public Radio is growing, so keep listening. Until then, I'm your host, Eve Tro. Be well, be good, be safe, and thanks. Thank you.